0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be back with you this morning to continue our study in the book of 1 John. So our text this morning is 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7 through chapter 5, verse 5. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me there. Uh, if you're using one of the black pew Bibles that are, that's in the pew in front of you, our passage this morning can be found on page 1023. 1023. As you find your way there, I want to invite you one more time, if you're able, to stand with me as I read to us God's holy and inspired and inerrant Word. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is, As he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he does not know or he does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen and this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God And obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world. Except the one who believes. That Jesus is the son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father I ask you this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would feed us from your word. Our Lord Jesus said that man should not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Father, we ask you this morning that you would use your word to sanctify us in truth. Help us obey for your glory this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've taken up this letter together, so I want to take just a few minutes to remind us of where we have come so far in this letter. If you remember, this letter is written by the Apostle John, and it was written to the church that was spread out in uh, Asia Minor. So in a modern-day map, you think about the area around about Turkey. Uh, So the church is there in Asia Minor, and and John, the Apostle John, uh, was a part of that church. Now, the occasion for John's writing, if you remember, was was twofold. First and most importantly, John is writing to encourage the Christians who are in that church, who are in that region, because there's been a significant split within the church. There's been a divide within the church, and, and there have been a group, there was a group of people who left the church and who began to travel about that region and who began to spread their false teaching. You remember their false teaching was that they denied that Jesus was the Christ sent from God. So John is writing this letter primarily uh, to the Christians who lived in that area in order to be an encouragement to them, in order to build up their faith. Secondly, and, and perhaps a little bit less importantly, but certainly it's there in this letter, John is also writing to refute those who have left the church and who are spreading this false teaching. So if you remember back in chapter 2 verses 18 through 24 that John says that you've heard that antichrist is coming big A that there's this one who is coming who is antichrist but so now many antichrists little a have gone out and so he he calls these people who have left the church these cessationists he calls them antichrist and we talked about how that really seems kind of be a, a harsh thing but uh, that 's literally what they are they 're denying that Jesus was the Christ, and so literally they are anti Christ. John also lays out in this uh, in this book several different tests in this letter, several different tests uh and and we talked about how the purpose of these tests are they 're not meant to to discourage us they 're not meant to be some type of burdensome thing that we have to live up to in order for our faith to be genuine. But really, maybe better than tests, there are these different proofs. And, and these proofs John gives in order to build up uh the church, the, the Christians who have remained there within the church. And so John's intent in giving these tests is to show these Christians, right, that they are the ones who have genuine faith. And we've been seeking to apply those tests and to take those different proofs and apply them. To our own lives as individuals and followers of christ but also uh to apply those uh things to our life here together at bloomfield baptist church but do you remember those tests do you remember these proofs the first one is the truth test the truth test do you believe that jesus really is the christ sent from god to make atonement for our sins Do you really believe jesus is who he said that he was that's the truth test Secondly, the repentance test. How seriously do you take your sins? Do you primarily think of your own sinfulness as an affront to the holiness and the righteousness of our God? Or do you see your sin as eh, really no big deal, especially in light of the person's sin who's sitting right next to you right now? That person's sin is way bigger of a deal, and it's way worse than my own sin. Right? No, no, the sin test. Do you believe that, that your sin, that you are a sinner and your sin is an affront to the holiness and righteousness of God? And Have you repented of that sin? And by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, are you seeking uh, to live in repentance and to live in holiness as God commands? So that's the, the repentance test. Thirdly, the obedience test. The obedience test. Do you seek to obey God? Are God's commandments to you in His Word a burden, or are they a joy? Are you abiding in God's Word with a faith that leads to obedience? Remember we talked about how faith leads to obedience, not the other way around. Our obedience does not lead to faith. That would be a works righteousness. That's, That's the idea that we obey God and that our obedience to God leads us to true and genuine faith. That's not how it works. And John has been very clear about that. He, he's clear about the fact that your obedience is a result of your faith. And so, and so do, uh, do you have a faith that leads you to obedience? So the truth test, the repentance test, the obedience test, and then finally, and, and what we've seen uh, fleshed out a lot here in John is the love test. The love test. Are you seeking to self-sacrificially love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or have you given up on the local church? Are you seeking to persevere in the life of the church despite sin, your own sin and other people's sin, despite disappointment, despite disagreement, despite discouragement, or maybe despite just plain old apathy? You'd rather just stay at home today. You're tired. You'd rather just stay at home. Are you seeking to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the love test. Now, all four of these different tests or all four of these different proofs, they're all woven together throughout this short letter. And we've been looking to dissect these in their various parts and apply them to our life and apply them to our church family here at Bloomfield. Well, this morning, the Apostle John is taking that fourth test, that love test, and it's like he's drilling down deep to the core of that test. What I hope we see this morning is that if we understand the truth of who Jesus is, and we grow in greater knowledge of that truth, that that will help us grow deeper in our desire to love one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to to be there in times of each other's need, to build our unity together around the truth of God's Word. And if this happens, we can have confidence, church family, that our love is a love that comes from God. That brings us to our main point this morning, and this, this main idea of the text. As you guys remember, I like to give you just maybe a summary statement, just two uh, short sentences that kind of summarizes the, the whole theme, the whole idea of our passage this morning. And hopefully you can take this, this summary, this idea, and you can... Uh, let it help you think through this passage. Maybe you can help it guide your conversations with your family over lunch today. But two short sentences you've got there in your notes. This main idea is this, that that God's love is made manifest in us when we love one another and keep God's command. Our love and obedience gives us confidence of faith both in this life and in the life to come. So God's love is is made manifest to us when we love each other and we keep God's command, and our love for one another gives us confidence in our faith. Okay, that brings us to point one in your notes there. Our love for one another is a reflection of God's love for us. Our love for one another is a reflection of God's love for us. Now, so far in our study of 1 John, we've seen this love test already. We've seen it in a couple of different places. So Uh, I want to take just a quick uh, minute to review here. So keep your finger here in chapter 4 and and flip back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 7. And let your eyes kind of look over this passage just to remind yourself of of what John was saying here. But if you remember here uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new command, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. This old commandment is this word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And here's where he introduces the love test. And he does it negatively, if you remember. Whoever says he is in the light yet hates his brother is still in darkness. Right. So if you say that you are in the light, that you are walking with God, that you have faith in God and yet you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are still in darkness. You are deceived by your sin, okay? That's, that's how John introduces this love test. And remember, it's, it's an old command. This old command was a command that God had given to his people all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, that they were to love one another. Yet at the same time, it is a new command. So it's an old command, but at the same time, it's a new command. And Remember when we talked about this new command, what, what that means, John is directly quoting Jesus here from, from his gospel, John 13, 34. When Jesus tells his disciples, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now the old part of the command is that we're to love one another. That comes from Leviticus 19. But the new part is that just as I have loved you, heart that's what makes it a new command because of christ's love for us and his sacrificial death that he is making us a new creation we are able to obey this love command that we are to love one another we are able to obey that age-old command in a new and a different way because jesus has fulfilled it for us now let your eyes go down a little bit to to first john chapter 3 and verse 14 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. Now, if you remember here, John is saying that we shouldn't be like Cain who murdered his brother. Rather, we're to love one another. When we love one another, that is evidence that Christ is at work in our hearts Making us new. We talked about how that should be a great motivation for us to love one another. Not that we're begrudgingly obeying some kind of command that some far off and distant God has given to us. But we're to love one another because that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. Rooting out your sin and making you new in Christ. It's a great motivation. Finally, look down at at chapter 3, verse 23. This verse we looked at last time. Chapter 3, verse 23 of 1 John, it says, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as He commanded us. So remember, John here teaches us that the foundational call of the Christian life is that we are to have faith in the truth of who Jesus is and we are to love one another with that same kind of love. And that brings us to where we are this morning in John kind of teasing out this love commandment. So look down in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, John begins this section. He begins uh, this, this idea, this flow of thought in Scripture by reiterating this command. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, he says that command again. He makes it clear that the command of God is that we're to love one another. But notice what John does next. He doesn't just give us this command for no good reason. He says that we are to love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not uh, love does not know God because God is love, now that that phrase there, "God is love is is said twice in our passage this morning, said here uh, in, uh, in verse seven and eight or in verse eight specifically, and he says it again down in, in verse sixteen that God is love. Now what in the world does it mean that God is love now It's a good question, and and John goes on to answer that question in in verses 9 through 11. But before we look at the answer to that question, I want to take just a second to step aside, step out of the text a little bit, and give you a tip. Okay, When you're studying your Bible on your own, when you're reading your Bible on your own, I like to do this every now and then to kind of bring out uh, these little tips to help you uh, to be able to read your Bible better and to be able to understand it better. And we've talked about some of these tips, like the therefore rule, right? When you run across the word therefore, you have to ask, what is this therefore? Uh, and so here's another one of those tips, okay? When you're reading through a passage, especially one of the letters in the New Testament, if you're reading through a passage and a question pops in your mind and you think, now what in the world does that mean? Or what is this saying? Or, you know, what does it mean that God is love? And, and you, a question like that pops into your brain. And then you keep reading and immediately what the writer does is he answers that question, that's a good indicator that you're on the right track to understanding what the passage is saying, okay? So if you have a question that pops in your brain as you're reading a text and, and then the, the author answers that question right away, then you're tracking along with him. You, you, you're, you're following, right? You're following his flow of thought. You're understanding. Sometimes uh, we ask questions, and I do this all the time, I'll ask a question and, and the answer is not in the text. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the answer, whatever the answer is, the, the question is that the, that the writer is answering, then that needs to help kind of pull us back into line to kind of get us right back on the right track a little bit. So so follow John's logic here. So the question is, what does it mean that God is love? Well, when John says that God is love, he goes on to explain in verses 9 through 11 that, that the nature of God's love is made very obvious. It's made, he uses this word manifest. It's, it's given this living, living picture, okay? God's love is, is put on display through his saving action of sending his son, Jesus. Look as you, re- well, we're gonna read verses nine through 11, but as I read verses nine through 11, think through one of the most famous uh, couple of verses that the apostle John wrote, uh, John three sixteen. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent his son into the world right, to save the world, not to condemn the world. Okay? So think. You remember those really famous verses that John writes. Now listen and keep those verses in mind as we read verses 9 through 11. What does it mean that God is love? In this, or in this way, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if god so loved us we also ought to love one another right so you see the similarity there between between john 3:16 here right and In these verses here, what does it mean that God is love? Well, His love is put on display. God so loved the world in this way that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. God's love for us is a redeeming, propitiating love. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. Before we want to move on, I want want to look at these verses here and and think through a couple of different things, okay? Now, Now, these verses, 9 through 11 could really be a whole sermon onto themselves, but I'm not going to do that to you guys this morning. Uh, I I won't preach two different sermons, uh, hopefully, but just a couple of observations, a couple of things I want you to notice, okay? The first thing is this, that we are even able to love God or each other because God first loved us, okay? God is the initiator of his act of redemption, he is the initiator of this love. We did not initiate it. God initiated it. We are able to love because, not because we loved him, but because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, do you realize this morning that even now, and I don't care if you've been a Christian for 20 minutes or for 20 or 40 or 50 or 60 years, do you realize that even now there is nothing within you or me, that is inherently lovable or worth saving. That's a tough truth to swallow in our pride. I stand here right now preaching to you God's word, and I confess to you this morning that in and of myself, there is nothing in me, even right now, that is inherently lovable or worth God's saving. Not worth it. I'm not worth it, and neither are you. But it's important that we remember that so that we might see the greatness and the wondrous mystery of God's love for us. We're not worth loving, but He loves us first anyway. Reminds me of Romans 5.8, right? It was while we were still in our sin that Christ died for us. We were, we're sinners, yet yeah, Christ died for us. and We confess that great love. We're able to have eternal life, not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that is good or, or lovable about us, but only because God has set His saving love on us while we were still in our sins. We read uh, from Romans chapter 8 just a minute ago about this doctrine of election. And even as I say that word, some of you guys twinge a little bit when I, when I say that, right? And we can hold our noses at this doctrine of election and think that that's just not the type of God I worship. Well, brothers and sisters, if, if a God who initiates salvation and who elects and saves his people through his redeeming love is not the God you worship, then you are headed for hell. Because there is nothing about you that's worth saving. There's nothing about me that's worth saving. If God did not love us first, we are in hell. It's that that plain, that simple, that easy. The doctrine of election that John teaches us here, that God first loved us, should bring us great joy. It should bring us great humility that God would somehow love somebody like me and save me and send a son to die on the cross in my place. That's a wondrous thing. We sang about it just a second ago. Some of y'all's favorite hymn, we sang it just a second ago, Victory in Jesus, right? It's exactly what, think about what we just sang, right? He sought me, and He bought me with His redeeming love. I didn't seek Him. I didn't didn't purchase salvation for myself. He sought me, and He bought me. Me with His redeeming love. My victory is in Christ and in Christ alone. My victory is not in myself. Right? That's, that's exactly what we believe. That's, that's what God's love is for us that He would love sinners just like you and me. And lastly, here on this word propitiation in verse 10. You see this word propitiation? It's one of those 25 cent theological words that people throw out sometimes to make themselves sound a little bit smarter Uh, but here it is and so we need to understand it now now this word that's translated propitiation in the ESV if you're using the ESV or the New American Standard or the King James or the New King James uh, this word here in verse 10 is translated propitiation now if you're using the NIV uh, this word is translated a little bit differently it's translated atoning sacrifice okay that Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins you're using the new living translation or the living bible it's it's translated similarly but a little bit different it's just sacrifice that christ is the sacrifice for our sin and if you're one of those odd birds uh that uses the rsv i don't know if any of you here if you any of you got rsv fans are here but if any of you use the revised standard version it translates this word entirely different it's that christ is the expiation of our sin now expiation and propitiation uh are, are similar. But they're two totally different things, okay? So propitiation, this word propitiation, I think is the best translation of of this word. uh, And and we need to understand it. It's a very rare word. It's used one other time in this letter. It's used in chapter two, verse two. uh, And then it's used maybe four or five other times in the rest of the whole Bible, okay? So this is a really, really rare word. It's it's not used that much, uh, but it's important that we understand what it means. So what does it mean? What is propitiation? Well, very simply, propitiation is a legal term. It's a legal term, and it means the turning away of wrath, the turning away of judgment or punishment or wrath. That's all it means, that that Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, that he, he absorbs, he turns away God's wrath for our sins. So you see what John is saying here. He's saying because we, in our sin, are under the wrath of God, Right? That that God loved us even while we are under his wrath. That God loves us with the type of love that he would send his only begotten son into the world to turn that wrath away from us and to pour it out on his son in our place. It's exactly what John is is saying here. Don't miss the magnitude of that. Right? God loves us who who not only don't deserve His love, but we deserve His full and holy and righteous and just wrath because of our sins with such an incomprehensible love that He poured out that wrath not on us who deserve it, but on His only Son so that we might be made right with Him. Brothers and sisters, that is a glorious truth. It's a truth that gives us all hope confidence. And if, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sin, I want you to realize this morning that God's wrath is still pointed directly at you right now. But it doesn't have to be. God loves us with such an unimaginable love that He sent His Son to live a perfect life that you and I could never live on our own. To perfectly please the Father in every way. And not only that, but to go to the cross and to suffer the punishment and the righteous wrath of God in our place that we deserved. He became our curse. And He died on that cross and propitiated our sin, took away that wrath that we deserved in our place, and took away all that condemnation and, and, and all that righteous anger from God. And now we can be made new in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never done that, uh, friend, I, I would encourage you to repent of your sin, to turn away from that sin and to throw your life on the mercy at the cross of Jesus. It's the only way you can have any hope of eternal life. Finally, in verse 11 here, John helps us take a step back and look at this love that God has demonstrated on our behalf. And it only leads him to one conclusion. It only leads him to one conclusion. He said, if God loves us like that, then we too ought to love one another in the same way. If God can love a sinner like me and die on the cross to take away my sins, then I ought to love my brothers and sisters who are sitting right here next to me, who don't deserve God's love either, but God's shown it to them. So I ought to love you and you ought to love me in that same way. Brothers and sisters, no one, no one can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and rightly understand understand what took place there and the love that God displayed for us at the cross of Christ and then turn around and return to some kind of self-centered love. Nobody can do that. If If you look at the cross of Jesus and what Jesus did for you there, and you turn around and you start to love in a self-centered kind of love, then that shows that you have misunderstood what Jesus did for you on the cross. Nobody can look at the redemption that we have in Jesus. Nobody can look at the cross of Christ and rightly understand what is taking place there and then turn around and not love our brothers. It's not possible. Well, if we do love one another, church family, it shows that we really do understand how much God has loved us. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two in your notes. Our love for one another is proof that we love God. Our love for one another is proof that we love God. Now there may be those of you who are in this room who have a very similar testimony to me. I grew up in church. Uh, There actually has never been a time in my life where I don't remember going to church. I just don't remember it. I grew up in the church, and I became a Christian at a very young age. I was, I was only about seven years old when I became a Christian. But as I grew up, as I got older, as I became a teenager especially in high school, I began to really struggle with, with assurance of my faith, of whether or not my faith in, in Christ was genuine or not. I mean, it was a deep struggle that, that, uh, that lasted for a long, long time. And the reason why I was struggling was because I was still struggling with sin. Right? And, and, and I knew my own heart and I knew my own struggles with sin. And I thought to myself, how in the world could God love somebody who struggles with sin like this? Or better yet, how can somebody who says they love God you know, have this in, same internal struggle with, with sin? Right? And I, I prayed about it and I thought about it. And I'm like, Lord, you know, did I, did I, do I really believe? Is my faith genuine? I saw people in my church who struggled in a similar way and they would go down. Uh, sometimes, some of them, sometimes multiple times, uh, they would go down front after uh, when the invitation was given and they would rededicate their life uh, to Jesus. And so I thought, well, maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I just need to, you know, have a little fresh start here and hit reboot and, and you know, have a clean slate and start all over again. And maybe that, that's what I need to, to bring about this assurance of salvation. But, and so I would do something like that and it wouldn't take but a few days, maybe even sometimes just a few hours and there I was again, right again, in the pit of despair, wondering what in the world, uh, you know, how in the world can I know that God loves me and that, that I abide in him and he abides in me? Well, if that's you this morning, if, if you have a similar struggle to the one that I had, these next verses that John uh, gives us, really, uh, really from verse 12 all the way down through the end of, the, end of our text this morning, uh, really has a lot to say about that struggle of assurance, that struggle of of confident faith. The question that John seems to be getting at here from from this point all the way down to chapter 5, verse 5, is how can we know? How can we know that we abide in God and God abides in us? Now, if you notice here in verse 12 and 13, he kind of gets it a little bit backwards, it seems. He he answers the question before he even asks it. So look down at verse 12. He says in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's, that's the answer to this question. But the question kind of doesn't come till verse 13. By this or in this way, we know that we abide in him and he in us. So how is it that we know that we abide in him and he in us? Well, we know that we abide in God When we love one another, that's John's answer. By this, or in this way, we know that we abide in Him. Now there are several little different hooks that that John gives us here, okay? He kind of lists them out the way that I see this text. These little hooks, and these hooks are given to us to encourage us in our faith. They're given to us to, to strengthen our confidence so that we can know that God's love abides in us, okay? So let's look at these different things that he lists out. The first thing, the first, the first little hook that he gives us, the evidence that he gives us to show us uh, that we can have this assurance of salvation is that God gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 13, right? God gives us the Holy Spirit to be our guide and our teacher, to sanctify us in God's truth, to convict our hearts when we fall into sin, and to help us love one another well. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. So, that's the first thing. The second thing, John says in verse 14 that we have the witness and the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Okay, so not only can we know because God has given us his spirit, but in verse 14, he says we can know because we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So, we have the eyewitness of all of the apostles. Now, brothers and sisters, here today, several thousand years later, we have something more sure than that. The Apostle Peter says that we have something that's more sure than the eyewitness testimony of the Apostles. We have God's written Word. We have the Bible. So, Brothers and sisters, let God's Word be a source of strength and assurance for your faith today. Lastly, He gives us faith. He gives us faith. In Verse, uh, verse 15, look down at 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? Do you believe Jesus is who he said he was? If you do, then you are blessed, because that's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's not a work of yourself. So John gives us these hooks. or Maybe, better yet, we can liken them to seeds. He gives us these little seeds to test our faith and What John does in these next several verses, he takes those seeds and he pushes them down into the fertile soil so that they can bring forth the fruit of confident faith. And that brings us to point three. Point three. God's initiating love gives us confident faith. God's initiating love gives us confident faith. Now, this is the year 2017. In case you didn't realize that, it's 2017. In 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So 500 years ago, Martin Luther, who was a German monk, nailed his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now most most church historians mark this event that happened on October 31st, 1517 as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now what's the big deal about the Protestant Reformation? Why is this something that we still talk about or remember 500 years later? Well, there are a lot of answers to that question. There's a lot of answers to that question. But here's one that I think is really important for us to understand. You see, the Roman Catholic Church in, in the early 1500s, and really the Roman Catholic Church still today, officially teaches in their Roman Catholic Catechism that for us, for anyone To express the fact that you have any confidence in your faith whatsoever is a very presumptuous sin. For you to have any type of assurance that one day you will go to heaven. The Catholic Church taught then and teaches still today through its official teaching that that is a very presumptuous sin. And why is that? Because how do you know that one day you're not going to commit some type of mortal sin? How do you know that you're not going to do that? And in the early 1500s, the Catholic Church sought to kind of control people with this fear. And that's what Martin Luther and the other reformers were reacting against, was they're, they're trying to control people with this fear that they, wouldn't, they didn't have this confident assurance that one day they would stand before the Father in heaven. By the way, If you talk to a person of the Muslim faith, they teach this exact same thing. There's no assurance for you in salvation. There's no way that you can confidently know that one day you'll go to heaven. They teach that that's presumptuous sin, just like the Catholic Church teaches it. It's a similarity between uh, the two, actually. Well, Luther and the other reformers, and I would argue the Apostle John in these verses, challenges this idea that we can't know for sure that one day we'll go to heaven. Luther argued, Luther argued that your confidence, that your assurance of faith, that your acceptance before God is not based on your own merit. It's based solely on your faith alone, in Christ alone. Pastor Richard has done a really good job bringing this out to us from the book of Exodus. When he shows us that it's... It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's not the works that we put into our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. It's our faith in Christ that saves us. Look down at verses 16 and 17. Starting there in the middle of verse 16. It says, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Christ but struggling, do you see the precious gift these verses are to you? We can have confidence right now before God that God loves us, that we're okay with him you can lay your head down tonight on your pillow and sleep in peace and full assurance and confidence of faith that if you die you can wake up in heaven that to be absent with uh, to be absent in the body is to be presence with god you can have that kind of assured confident faith you can have it how do we have it how do we know that we can have it We know because God in His great love has sent His Son and He died to take away God's wrath. And now that perfect love, John says, casts out all fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can have full confidence and full assurance in your faith because Christ died to make you his own. We need to love one another with that same self-sacrificial and confident faith because God has first loved us. And that brings us to our final point this morning, point four. Point four. The genuineness of our faith is tested by the genuineness of our love. The genuineness of our faith is tested by the genuineness of our love. Again, we see that no one who has experienced this type of love that God has shown to us can even fathom not loving their fellow Christians. John says it this way down in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. We love one another because we understand that the same love with which God loved us is extended to the person who's sitting right next to you. Because God loves them with that same self-sacrificial, redeeming love that He loved you with. And so, we ought to love one another in that same way. There will be times when someone in this church lets you down. There will be times when someone in this church makes you angry. It's going to happen. There will be times when you just don't feel very loved or feel very loving towards other people. And there's going to be times that you would much assume just stay at home. But remember, Christ died to make each of us His own. And if we truly love Christ, then we will love those whom Christ loves. So our love is a reflection of a genuine faith in God. Also, John shows us that not only are we to love one another because God has loved us, but also God commands us to love one another. He commands us. There's plenty more to say about these verses, but let me close with this. If we are to love one another the way God has loved us, then the primary thing that we should desire for one another is each other's holiness. More than anything else, more than your happiness, more than your health, more than anything else, we should desire for one another holiness. My desire for you, and I hope this morning that your desire for for me, is that we would obey God's commands and that, and that we would have victory over this world and over our sin. It's my hope, and I hope that's your hope for me. Because if that's our hope for one another, then we as a church family will be a church who is marked by fighting for one another's holiness. By laboring together with one another in love To help each other be more obedient to God's commands. To remind one another of God's love for us. If we love one another genuinely, if we love one another in this way, it'll be a sign and a testament to a watching world that our faith in Jesus and the mercy and the grace that He has shown us is real and it's genuine. And that they can have that same grace too. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You loved us first. And I thank You that we can be here this morning in confident faith because our faith is not grounded in or upon anything that we have done or anything that is within us. But Father, that our faith is grounded in the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that You lived and died to make us Your own. And so Father, I pray that we would live and love with one another in a way that reflects that same love that you have shown to us. Pray these things in your name. Amen.